it again. Chapter 3, verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let me begin by just tying up a few things that we've seen recently, not only in the evening services, but also in the morning services, in our series on foundations. We've seen on the previous two Sunday mornings that we, as human beings, are social and communal creatures. We have been made by the God who is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, and we reflect that community of God. We are made for friendship, for community, for relationship, and for love. That's the first thing we've seen quite pointedly. And in the evenings, we've been looking at the theme of maturity. And we saw last Sunday evening that the man, Jesus Christ himself, is the perfect example, model, and definition of true maturity. Where is the perfect man? Where is the best man? Where is the greatest man? Where is the man who is filled completely with wisdom, knowledge, love, obedience, righteousness, and everything good? Jesus is that true man. Now, let's put those two things together, and what do we get? We reach that end point one day of maturity, of completeness, of fullness, of perfection in community with Jesus Christ and no other way. He is maturity incarnate. In him the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, says Paul in Colossians, and you and we are complete in him. How do we grow? How do we develop? How do we press on towards that end point and that goal? Is it through a series of stringent exercises that we prescribe for ourselves and we have to undertake them at half past five in the morning every day religiously for 50 years? and have go for runs and that kind of thing. No, it's not like that at all. We grow and we reach maturity as we live in fellowship with Jesus. And that's what this verse is all about. And it's a glorious, glorious verse. Indeed, we're really looking at the last three verses of chapter 3 because we see three things here. We see, first of all, the lifting of the veil. And then we see, secondly, in verse 17... The spirit of freedom. And then my final point from verse 18 is simply from glory to glory. That's it. So, first of all, the lifting of the veil. And we start in verse 16. And there Paul says this. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, what is this veil that Paul is talking about. Well, he's taking us back 
in the Old Testament to the, the book of Exodus and to chapters 33 and 34. And there we read that Moses and only Moses would go often into the tent of meeting. He would go and be with the Lord. He would spend time in that prayer and fellowship and communion with God. And when he came out from being with the Lord, his face was shining. Not, not glowing as if he'd been out in the sun for a couple of hours, but actually shining radiantly. There was a luminosity about his face that was extraordinary and supernatural. And he would cover his face with a veil so as not to actually frighten and alarm the people who would see him. And he would only take that veil off his face when he went back to see the Lord again. But Paul uses that image of a veil to illustrate something about the people of Israel in Paul's own day and indeed in the days of Jesus. This veil over their faces is an illustration of spiritual blindness, of hardness of heart, of a lack of understanding of spiritual understanding. And you may remember how the Lord Jesus himself said about the people of Israel and said to them, you study the scriptures that you might find their eternal life, but you refuse to come to me. And he said of them, if you really listened to Moses, claiming as you are to be disciples of Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote about me, but you refuse to come to me that you may have life because your hearts are hardened and there is a veil over your spiritual eyes. And we see Paul saying exactly these things in verses 14 and 15. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, when they turn the Old Testament and look at the pages, the same veil remains unlifted. Because, this is the great thing, friends, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Didn't Jesus say about these people, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, saying, These people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now we might say, well, yeah, these Israelites were like that, weren't they? Terrible. Israelites 2,000 years ago. We must understand that exactly the same thing can happen to you and to me. The same veil over our spiritual eyes. What do I mean by that? We can claim to be Christians. But it's only true in a formal sense. In an external sense. Nobody else might know that what is really in our hearts and in our minds. We we go through all the right motions, we turn up at the right times and we say the right words and we read our Bibles and we even take the Lord's Supper. 
But there's a veil over our faces between us and the Lord. We don't actually know him. We may know about him. We can quote Bible verses as well as anybody else. But in terms of real relationship, real knowledge, real fellowship, real love, the Lord may as well be a stranger to us. That can so easily be true of any of us. Indeed, naturally, that will always be true of all of us unless something wonderful happens. And Paul says here that it's only through Christ that the veil is taken away. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Of course, we're meant to be thinking of a very obvious ceremony, aren't we, when we think about a veil being lifted? We're thinking about a wedding, about a marriage, where in many cultures the bride walks up to the front, perhaps, and the bridegroom is there, and the bride's face is covered with a veil, but then the bridegroom is the one who lifts up the veil so that he can actually see his bride's face clearly. This is what happens when we come to the Lord. We know God in and through the bridegroom who lifts that veil away from our eyes. And we say, ah, now I can see him. Now I can see Jesus. Now I understand him. Isn't salvation, isn't conversion, isn't being born again like that for many of us? There perhaps came a point in your life where you said, Ah, now I see. I really see. I see that Jesus is the one and the only one who could save me. The lifting of the veil from our eyes that before were dim and blind and weak. What was previously an arm's length relationship becomes a fond and enduring embrace. But there's a second point we need to see here this evening. The spirit of freedom. Come with me to verse 17. Now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The spirit of freedom. Now this is a confusing verse, isn't it? Maybe you see it's a confusing verse, maybe you don't think it is. But I think it, it, it seems a little hard to understand at first. Who is the Lord that Paul is speaking about? The Lord is the Spirit. Who is the Lord? Which Lord? Well, God, clearly. But uh, is this God in the general sense of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit? Is this Jesus himself, whom Paul so often refers to, as he does in this passage, uh, simply as the Lord? Or is it the easiest explanation, which is that the Lord is the Spirit. Well, that Lord basically is the Holy Spirit. Is that all that it's actually saying, that the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit? Well, I would take it like this. The Lord referred to here in verse 17 is the Lord Jesus himself. But Jesus, who is so full of the Spirit... So in communion with the Spirit, so in fellowship, we might say in step with the Spirit, 
that it can be said of him that this Lord is the Spirit. Do you remember how Jesus said to those who asked him questions, my father and I are one. Well, in a similar sense here, the Lord is the Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus was made a life-giving Spirit. Now, we are probing some deep Trinitarian mysteries here, aren't we, friends? We can't prize the three persons of the Godhead apart. We can't separate them out and say, here's the Father, here's the Son, and here's the Spirit in three separated pieces. But neither can we overlook the fact that they are the three in one. It was the 4th century Cappadocian church father, Gregory Nazianzus, who famously said, and uh, Ian Hamilton, David's father, quoted these words right here the very day I was inducted into the pastorate at Grove Chapel nearly five years ago. No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish the three than I am carried back to the one, the three-in-one triune God. But we need to see the big message here tonight. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Come back to that earlier image. Bridegroom and bride, face to face. The veil is lifted away. And now those faces look at each other. And there is clarity. And the barrier's gone. And all the inhibitions that previously kept them at arm's length away from each other have just vanished and collapsed. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. When the Spirit of the Lord works in a soul, he creates in that soul a desire to draw near to God, unhindered, unobstructed, bold, confident, communicating, asking, pleading, praying, worshipping, singing, drawing closer without hesitation to be truly ourselves, to be truly alive with him. Haven't we all been in situations where we're with someone that we know? We know them. That is, we're acquainted with them. But we don't really, really know them. They don't let us get close to them. And we're reluctant to let them get close to us. There's a reserve. There's a guardedness. There's a defensiveness. That neither party can quite shake off. Now sometimes that may not be a problem. If it's, your, if it's your employer, your boss, and you work in a company with several thousand employers and your boss and you are a bit like that, it may not matter. If it's the lady down at the checkout in Morrison's or, or Sainsbury's and you're a bit like that with that person, it may not matter very much. 
If it's a local councillor or MP or policeman, it doesn't actually matter if you're not bosom pals with them. But if you call that person your closest friend, or if that person is your child, or your parent, or especially if that person is your husband and wife, husband or wife, there is something deeply deeply unsatisfactory about that kind of arm's length, guarded, shutters down relationship. Aren't you aching? Aren't you longing? Aren't you pining for a breakthrough, for a relationship, for an openness, for a freedom to be yourself and for them to be free to be themselves with you? Oh, for something open and real and unhindered. And when that doesn't exist, not only will there be distance and coldness, but there will be ignorance, misunderstanding and scope for suspicion and doubt and distrust. The Lord is the Spirit. See the picture. Here's the bridegroom receiving the bride and the bridegroom removing the veil from her face and saying, my darling bride, I I love you. I've come to you. I want to know you. I've taken the initiative. I'm looking in your eyes. I'm yours forever. You're mine forever. That's the way it's meant to be. The deepest intimacy. The Lord who is the Spirit is the bringer of this freedom. It is he who removes the veil from our faces and from our hearts. Now, what if you might say this? But I don't feel close. But I don't sense that freedom. I wish I had freedom and intimacy with the Lord, but I just don't feel it. He seems very far from me. And many, many of the Lord's people down the years have been through times when they felt like that. Where praying seems like you're carrying ten tons of heavy lead up a high mountain. And your prayers seem to bounce off the sky, off heaven, as if heaven's made of some sort of burnished bronze. And it just bounces back and everything seems difficult. But let me say this. There is no reluctance, no hesitation on the Lord's side in drawing us closer to himself. And though these are deep pastoral areas, one possibility is that you and I, through sin, through unbelief, Through coldness, through hardness of heart, we can grieve the Spirit of God. We can quench the Spirit of God. We can deny ourselves the freedom and joy that we might otherwise know. It's as if we are reluctant to allow the veil to be lifted from our faces and we kind of hold it down in front of us. And we never really let the veil be lifted. And a great deal of this has to do with our times of prayer. 
particularly our private prayer, our secret prayer. Doesn't our Lord Jesus say to us, but you, when you pray, go into your room and close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees you in secret will hear you. And that implies we go and we shut everything else out and we take time and sometimes we've got to pray ourselves into prayer. At first we're inhibited. The words don't come. The thoughts don't come. We're muzzled. We're veiled. We're like wooden soldiers. We can't get going. We, don't, we feel stiff. We feel robotic. There's no feeling. There's no love. And that can often start that way, can't it, in praying? But then as we pray, and as we realize that the Lord has come as a bridegroom to draw us to himself, and as that realization comes from the Spirit himself, there comes in time the uninhibited openness in prayer and in intimacy that we so long to enjoy. Don't we? Don't we? And sometimes we do. We enjoy it. I want to come, though, to a final point. From glory to glory. And verse 18 once more. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Once again, it's so comforting, isn't it, that Paul writes here and uses these words, and we all, all. Who's he writing to? The church in Corinth. What's the church in Corinth like? Are they a very quiet church, a very united church, a very contented church, a church with no problems, a church where everything is hunky-dory all the time? Do you think so? Uh Uh-uh. They are a church littered with problems of every kind you can imagine, as we know from both of these letters to the Corinthians. But the Apostle Paul has no hesitation in saying to them, we all... We are brothers and sisters. We are children of God. And we all have this privilege. We're we're, we're gazing at the face of Jesus Christ. We're looking at his face. And as we do so, this is the wonderful thing. We are being transformed into the same image of Christ. From one degree of glory into another. Beholding the glory of the Lord. Let me use an illustration, not so much an illustration of C.S. Lewis, but in a sense the whole whole sort of motivation of so much of what C.S. Lewis wrote. If you read C.S. Lewis's books, not just Narnia but other books, you'll see he talks a great deal about the subject of joy. Joy. What does he mean by joy? He draws a difference between contemplation and joy and he says if you contemplate something you 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 look at it from a distance 
You marvel at it. You say, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it impressive? Isn't it majestic? Isn't it worth looking at and describing and, and saying what a wonderful thing this is? You look at the, the glory of the sun on a bright sunny day. You look at a huge mountain. You look at a great waterfall and you say, look at that. Contemplate that. Get that. Isn't that just so impressive? But joy is more than that. Joy is to actually be taken up by something and taken into something and to be transported into its very world, to breathe its air, to sense its colours. You see, I could contemplate the sun by talking about the sun, the, the size of the sun, the temperature of the sun, the brightness of the sun, the power of the sun, all of these things. But to enjoy the sun is to bask in its rays, to feel its warmth and cheer on your face, to soak it up, to become, as it were, almost a partner with the sun. You, you're, you're feeling and sensing and participating in the very glory and light of the sun itself. You think of C.S. Lewis writing The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, if you know that story. And at the beginning, there's a picture on the bedroom wall. And Edmund and Lucy and Eustace are looking at this picture of a ship. They can see the picture. They can contemplate it. They can, they can see the ship and the sea, and it's impressive. But what happens as they look? You know what happens, don't you? The ship begins to move. The water begins to, to sway, and the waves are going up and down, and the water's actually coming out into the room. And the children are drawn into the picture. And before long, they're actually swimming in the sea. And a few minutes later, they're on board the deck of that ship. Now, that is a powerful illustration. I think C.S. Lewis is onto something wonderfully precious here. He really is. We are called to enjoy Jesus, to come to him. We go from a two-dimensional experience of reading our Bibles and knowing about Jesus and getting the quizzes right about where he was born and where he died, and we actually we get into the book it's like a, one of those 3D magic eye pictures. You see the depth. You see the dimension. And we, are, we come to Jesus. We receive him. We look full in his wonderful face. We enter into his world. And he into ours. We actually say, we know him. He knows us. I talk to him. He talks to me. It's a dynamic relationship. The Spirit, the Lord who is the Spirit, is in me. I am a partaker of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. His words resonate with my heart. My heart resonates with his words. I hear his words and I think, yes, this, this is real, this is true, this is satisfying, this is joyful. For this I was made and redeemed to know him. That's what Paul surely is talking about here. The veil's gone from the face. We are partners, participators, lovers. And as we do this, we are transformed into the same image, says Paul, from one degree of glory into another. Did you notice how in the earlier part of the reading, in verses 7 to 11, 
There's a word there that appears 12 times in verses 7 to 11. What is that word, do you think? Glory. Glory. The word glory fills this chapter. What is Christian maturity then? It's glory. It is you and me ultimately becoming as glorious in our redeemed humanity as Jesus Christ himself, with whom we are one, with whom we inherit everything. We are being transformed into the same image. You see, the Apostle Paul is saying, yes, there was a glory in the old covenant. There was a glory in the tabernacle. There was a glory in the temple. There was that Shekinah cloud. There was that cloud of brilliance that meant that the priests could no longer minister in the temple because it was so dazzlingly bright. We can't quite visualize that, can we? There was that glory in the face of Moses that we've thought about already. But all that's faded away, says Paul. All that is nothing, nothing compared to this. That in the new covenant, with the law of God written on our hearts, because we are partakers of the mind and spirit of Jesus, we share in his glory, and this is the thing with which we finish, we are being transformed from one degree of glory into another. Sometimes you go and sit outside in the sunshine in the summertime, and we all have different complexions. Some of us are unaffected by the sun. Some of us, our skin gets a little darker. Some, it gets a little redder. We're all, we have different skins and pigmentation and so forth, but our faces respond to sunlight. But when the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ shines on us, there is a glory and a power that penetrates far beyond skin deep. It means the transformation of our whole character. It means that the love and the grace of God is extending deep into our souls, deep into our hearts, deep into our minds. More and more light floods us. I often think that we're, we're all like big buildings, aren't we, with lots of different rooms inside us. And there are some rooms in our lives that have received a lot of light already, aren't there? They've got lots of windows and the light has filled them. And sometimes some parts of our lives are filled with light early on in the Christian life. We, we understand something very, very well on day one and we never lose that understanding. But there are some rooms in your heart and mine, aren't there, friends? There are some rooms in my heart and in your heart where the curtains are drawn, where the doors are shut, where they've never been opened, never been swept. They're murky, they're dark. They're stale, they're shameful, they're, they're embarrassing, they're painful, there's such a lot to be done. And what we need, and what the Lord is willing to do, is shine His glory, His face, into 
the depths of our souls, changing us, sanctifying us, making us more and more like Jesus until that day when we see him as he really is and then we will be like him. And actually that's where we're going to go next Sunday at the end of this series. Whether it's going to be in 1 John or 1 Corinthians 13, I'm not yet sure, but likeness to Jesus Christ. You can't get a better omega point, end point, goal of maturity than that, can you? But we're nearly there now. We're nearly there now. Let's pray together.